It's time for the FedEx Cup playoffs, which means the only place you're going to be able to see early round action is, of course, on PGA Tour Live. Feature groups this week are Hideki Matsuyama, Jordan Spieth, Justin Thomas, and a lot more, plus feature hole coverage. Go to PGATourLive.com today and subscribe. And, of course, checking in with our friends at Odyssey. Odyssey, the number one putter in golf, and they are just continuing to dominate the tour with the most worldwide wins this year. Henrik Stenson's win last week at the Wyndham put Odyssey over the 50-win mark for the year. That's more than any other putting brand. Now let's get to the podcast. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything different? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Excited to be joined today by Eddie Pepperell. Eddie, we tried to meet up in London a few weeks ago. It didn't happen, so we got to do this over the phone. But uh, thanks for joining, and uh, how are you today, man? Yeah, no worries. I'm I'm good. I'm uh, I'm in Denmark, but um, yeah, no, all is good. Yeah, it was a shame not to meet up. There's a nice service station that does uh, Nando's. I was hoping we could meet there, but you said um, you said you didn't have a car, so that was a shame. But maybe one day. Trying to get around London with a a thirty kilo golf travel bag without a car. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of sweat on that day. But uh, sorry, we didn't get to meet up. But yeah, you uh, you re- I got to play out at Walton Heath while I was out there. You recently, that's the course you qualified at uh, for the U.S. Open this year. Did you play a lot there at all growing up, or where do you play most of your golf? Yeah, so I played a tournament there once a year at Walton Heath as an amateur. Um, so I got to play it a bit. Uh, but I live kind of about an hour and a half away from there. Um, but it's a, it's a great course. I mean, I'm sure you enjoyed it. Both courses are really good. Um, yeah, you know, I, I love the way that the, the Heather kind of, uh, I think it's Heather, yeah, the Heather frames the kind of, you know, frames the holes. It's unusual, right, to have a course that feels open but actually is framed by something like that. It's, it's nice and um, plays really well. So what did you think of it? I guess you enjoyed it. Oh, yeah, I loved it. I mean, it played kind of fast and firm, like a like a Lynx course should. But it's kind of it's kind of a hybrid style. It's it's Lynx ish without really being on the sea. Um, yeah. But that Heathland feel to it of you know it has pretty wide wide enough fairways at least. But uh, so there's no excuse to be in the in the the heather or gore. It's almost like a, a shaved down gorse like grass that is super punishing there. But uh, I really enjoyed playing around London, man. That was a that was a different different style of golf and. Uh, I was curious because you live out near Oxford now. Do you what is that? What is that commute like? How, what's it like traveling for you? Because you're about are you maybe 45 minutes from Heathrow or how far are you from Heathrow? Yeah, exactly. You know, I live in a good place to be honest to commute. Um, I'm kind of an hour outside of London, 45 minutes to Heathrow. Um, so yeah, it's it's a pretty good location where I'm from. You know, I could have had it a lot worse to be fair. And you know, we haven't got the kind of crazy house prices that London have got as well. So it's um, yeah, best of both worlds really. Well, let's do, I, I'm sure a lot of listeners, most listeners to the show are definitely familiar with you, but if, for those that aren't and whatnot, can we do like a quick introduction and we'll get to the good stuff after that, but give us like your two minute intro that sums up to how you got to where you are today, where you are today, the state of your game, uh, the ups and downs and whatnot, what your amateur career was like. If you can summarize that in a couple minutes, uh, what is your, what is your go-to introduction? <laughs> um... <laughs> Well, the go-to, the go-to, I started at four, um, and then, you know, like most kids, just played growing up, right, have fun, uh, competed, I started competing quite young, 
kind of 11, 12-ish. And then, um, yeah, was a good junior golfer, played a lot of golf in England as a kid and, um, you know, had a good amateur career, won a few of the bigger, biggish events in the UK, but I was never really what I, you know, what you'd consider a top amateur, um, or a really top, top amateur, I didn't think. And then turned pro in 2011, uh, I played a bit of mini tour stuff at the beginning of 2012, I believe, but I actually had, I won my first event on the challenge draw of that year, which then you know, got me some starts on the tour. I ended up coming 16th, sorry, 13th on the rankings, which got me a European tour card. And, um, yeah, I've been on the tour ever since, obviously. Had a, a few good years on the tour from 2013 to, to 16. Lost my card last year, but got it back. And this year's been, you know, better than last for sure. And obviously the highlight probably being the US Open where I had a top 20. So and that's, I guess, a basic summary of, of the career so far and from a golf, golf standpoint. Um so that's yeah. pretty good. That was under two minutes. That was pretty good. That's exactly what I was looking for. So um, I did want to talk about a bit about your amateur career. And I think you summed it up perfectly. You had a good amateur career, but you wouldn't call yourself a top amateur. Did you think um, career wise, did to, from like your amateur career to today, were you supposed to be on it? Did you feel like you were supposed to be on a different trajectory than the one you're on? Did you have higher expectations, lower expectations? I guess go back to when you were 21 and looking at you now at 26. Are you where you thought you would be? Oh, that's a good, good one. Um, honestly, I had no expectations, you know? Yep. And when I think back, I, you know, I honestly can't remember what kind of my goals were. I didn't. I don't think I really had any. I, I didn't really set any goals or anything like that. Um, you know, it was, I, I think I lost my way. Well, I didn't lose, lose my way. I lost some interest. And when I was kind of 19, 20, and I got a bit bored of playing the, the same amateur events. And, you know, I'd been doing it for so long around the same people. And I felt like I needed a fresh challenge. I turned pro middle of the year, Walker Cup year, and I mean, I would have been in the Walker Cup. I, I played, I won the Portuguese amateur that year. I'd had, I'd won a couple of events the year before. You know, I was pretty confident, if I'm being honest, I would have got a spot in that team. But, you know, honestly, the Walker Cup just wasn't, it was of no interest to me. I, I seem to have developed, um, how can I describe it? Uh, a kind of, a bigger picture kind of uh, feeling, if that makes sense from the, when I was beginning of my 19th kind of birthday I had a winter where I kind of just dived into dozens of books and um, started to learn a bit more about you know psychology within sport and particularly just reading about other people's uh, careers you know in other sports and I kind of realized that you know what not that the amateur stuff isn't important but it's about it's about improving right it's just about challenging yourself and pushing for something different and that's why I decided to do it at that time in 2011 so um yeah, but to answer your question, it was, you know, there wasn't really, I say, a bigger picture kind of goal, but there was no real end point goal to that. It was a bigger picture kind of viewpoint with a very much of a process focus, if that makes sense, on a day-to-day -day kind of basis. And, um, yeah, that was that was my approach back then, from what I remember. Do you? That was quite the Walker Cup. I mean, that 2011 U.S. team was absolutely stacked, and the yeah. Great Britain and Ireland beat them at Royal Aberdeen, if I remember right. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, my friend Tom Lewis played. Um, I think, yeah, yeah. I, again, I wouldn't be able to tell you who was in the team, either team, but um, you'd know. But um, I know Andy Sullivan was on that team, and that's about one of the – him and Lewis were the only guys I immediately recognized, but it was against, like, Jordan Spieth. Um, I think Patrick Rogers was on that team. I'd have to look at it again. I've been going back through Walker Cup archives, but that one I just looked at that team and said, how in the world did that team lose? But – 
man, yeah, you would have you would have been a, undoubtedly a part of a winning team on that one. But um, well, I don't know. I mean, my record at Royal Aberdeen is terrible. So actually, when I think about it, I'm kind of glad I missed it. <laughs> That's a tough course, man. I, that was one of the harder courses I think I've, I played in Scotland. But yeah. um, so I, I I don't know how far you usually get into interviews before somebody brings up your blog. Is eight minutes? Is that <laughs> is that short or did I? How far did I make it into before bringing no, up the blog? You doubled it. You, you're, you're fine. <laughs> But you do have one of the more insightful, I guess, mediums for a mind into a touring pro. You're you're very open, honest, and uh, very revealing. Often in blog posts, how did that how did that originally come about? And uh, do you do you still have the same kind of passion towards venting your thoughts uh, on your blog as you did when you started it? Yeah, so it came about um, that winter I described, where I kind of uh, you know started reading lots of books. That's when it kind of came about. I, I kind of discovered that as I read, which I'd never did as a kid, you know, I'd, I'd never finished a book before I was 19, and then all of a sudden, you know, I wasn't putting one down for a little while. Um, and I just found that the more I read, the more I kind of thought about my own my own experiences and I guess reflected, right? And uh, I just kind of had so much going on in my head and winters were kind of long and boring, you know, uh, as an amateur back in the UK for sure. So I, I had plenty of time just to start writing and I did and... I mean, I haven't gone over it, but I imagine some of it would be quite funny to go back over now. But that was that was how it started. And then, yeah, I obviously got my card and I wrote a couple of posts that I think some people found particularly interesting. I think the first one really was called Life on Tour, which I wrote, I remember, in Abu Dhabi in my rookie season. And I was uh, first reserve all week. And, you know, it was quite a lonely week for me. I kind of knew nobody and there was room service going on. And, you know, it was, it was um, yeah, that's what, started been writing blogs of that kind of ilk and nature if, if that makes sense you know just being alone a bit on tour and, and just having those thoughts going through the mind and, and wanting to you know expand on them and I, I guess I enjoyed the kind of creative aspect of writing and once I do start writing I kind of enjoy it um you know I, yeah but um so yeah that's how it began to be honest with you Chris and yeah and you know, it's, from there it just it, took off it's 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 a great read, and, and I've I've talked about this many times on the show about how the, that you know when you walk go to a tournament when you watch on TV how being a touring professional looks like the most glamorous job in the world. I think your your blog is kind of an insight to the ups and downs and how that's that's not necessarily always the case. So I'll ask do, do is being a professional five years in? Uh, I think about five years in. Does it does it match your expectations of what you thought life would be like is it better is it not as glamorous or what 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 you know five years in how do you see it yeah it's it's kind of a lot more up and down um and i mean that more from like a material perspective um so i've always considered myself very level-headed and and i am um just in spite of the, the highs and the lows but you know the kind of the high finishes and the rewards and the feeling you get when you contend to win and okay I haven't won yet but I've come close and you know those feeling I mean that is like a drug right that's that's like what anyone would describe that's if you're a performer and that's what I honestly love you know it's the same with the US Open this year just being in front of that many people and you know I've always been a bit of a show-off as a kid so to feel like I can go and show off some skills in front of people I mean it's a great great feeling and I'll always be addicted to that and I'll always want more of that but the low times you know the missed cuts, um, the spell I had last year where I lost my card. I mean, God, it, it kind of drove me to despair. And, you know, I was going to bed at night worrying about certain tee shots. And really the only way I could quiet my mind down was with a couple of glasses of, 
you know, kind of strong red wine. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the ups and downs from that perspective were, you know, I would never have envisaged that, to be honest with you. Um, you, you would never experience that as an amateur, right? I remember getting frustrated and <clears throat> a lot as a kid, as a junior and as an amateur, but I never, to the same degree, had the frustration that I've had as a professional, but also never to, nowhere near the same degree had the level of kind of satisfaction that you get when you have, you know, a high finish and... Um, you realise what, you know, the money gives you because, you know, obviously if you have, hey, it's, it's good money on the European Tour, obviously it's incredible money on the PJ Tour, but, you know, it's just kind of crazy what you realise just, you know, earning that sort of money can, can bring to your life and, um, yeah, it's it's definitely, you know, grows, you grow up quick, you know, um, in a way. Do you think, I mean, it, it may be a dumb question because I think everyone has to, but coming down the stretch of a tournament when you're in the top five, are you thinking about the potential dollar amount or euro amount that comes with every swing? Uh, I have, yeah. I remember the Scottish Open at Gullen uh, when Ricky won. I think I was I think I think was two behind coming down the last, and I hit it to about 10 feet. I hit quite a nice shot in, and I looked at the leaderboard, and at this point I knew I couldn't win. But I knew that was a big putt. Like, I said to myself, this is, this is a, yeah, this is a kind of, at least a 50 grand putt, so I'm going to hold it and I hold it and I give it a big fist bump. And yeah, you know, I think anybody that tells you they're not at some point playing for some money, they're lying. Um, because honestly, it's an incredible feeling when you know you hold a putt to give you 50K, say, or even 100 grand. That's a lot, a lot of cash. And um doesn't mean to say I just play for the money. I'm playing to contend and to win golf tournaments, right? But when that's kind of out the window, then, you know, you need something else to get your juice going. And Honestly, I I find being in 30th position just, I'd rather be at home, you know, than in 40th position because you're just, you're just like a zombie on the golf course at that point. So, um, yeah, I've, I've felt that in the past, Chris. Well, it's it's kind of an awkward, inappropriate question to ask people about finances. But it, for some reason, when you're with professional athletes, I feel like people are a bit shameless in asking about it. So I'll be carefully ask I, I you know you've had you've had a lot of success you were uh, on at one point ranked the 80th ranked player in the world in 2016 as you mentioned you lost your card and it was not a strong year for you do thing obviously you you like you made more money during the year in 2015 to 2016 but do you is it do, are you have you reached like a certain level of comfort that you weren't stressing necessarily about like finances in 2016 and you were more just focused on your game or does year to year does it vary that much I mean, um, All right, I'm asking in a different way. Are you stressing about making money for your card purposes or are you stressed about making money for ma- for making money purposes, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's a good, I guess the latter, really, actually, if I had to, if I had to be honest, yeah. up front with you, um, because, <clears throat> you know, for me, like I got greater ambitions than just retaining the tour card, um, I, you know, so whereas... Yeah, I mean, the you know, the if I was to say win a hundred grand this week in Denmark, I wouldn't think, oh great, that ties my card up. I'd think, right, I'm going to do the kitchen up, you know. <laughs> um, and you know that that's how I would think about it. Um, so yeah, I guess the latter really, in response to your question, Chris. Uh, and uh, you know, I've grown to think that there's nothing shameful in saying that. No. Uh, when I was a lot younger and you know, way more left on the political spectrum, right, I would have been like, you know. We, uh, yeah, we, we shouldn't be thinking this sort of thing. It's almost a crime to be thinking about money. And I remember when I would hear kind of Polter come out with a comment about, I don't know, a car or something. I would you know, think, God, that's, that's, that's not the right attitude. But 
as I've grown up and, and had some experience in professional life, I've realized, you know what, there's actually no right or wrong as to how, how anybody thinks. And, you know, everybody's entitled to think whatever they want at the end of the day. And um, I wouldn't judge anybody for, for, for that, quite frankly, anymore. We talked a bit at the beginning of the show about the impact that Odyssey Golf has had on professional golf around the world with Henrik Stenson's win at the Wyndham, putting Odyssey over the 50-win mark for the year. New from Odyssey are the new O-Works Red and O-Works Black putters, and they've taken extensive feedback from the best players in the world, and the putters offer beautiful new head shapes and finishes along with a micro-hinge insert to help you make more putts. I can attest to this. I've got the O-Works Red. The micro-hinge insert makes the ball come off. The putter face just a bit softer. I feel like I'm making a nice, firm stroke with the ball and not fearing running putts by with it. O-Works Red and Black are in stores now, so go experience it for yourself or at odysseygolf.com. And would you, so going back to, you know, 2015 into 2016, the, the struggles that you had in that regard, I've heard you read about them on your blog talking about that they're more technical than mental, uh, for the, I'm, I'm a golf nerd. So when I want to hear somebody say technical, like I, I actually want to hear the details of like the swing, the swing breakdown or where you think it went wrong. So when you say, when you say things got technically wrong for you, uh, what were they or what are they and what have you done to adjust for them? Yeah. So. I was thinking about this because I thought you might bring something like this up and I was thinking about my own, you know, habit and, and I think that, you know, there's definitely feelings that as golfers have, right? We're all playing with feelings every single day of every single week and some feelings, you know, just aren't conducive to good golf under pressure, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas, so what I found with me is that my history of my golf swing is I get quite a bit of lateral shift from the top, particularly with my upper body. So what me and my coach have kind of worked on over the well, what my coach has liked me to, you know, work on is the idea of just getting my arms down and particularly in front of my chest, you know, before my chest kind of laterally shifts, the arms would come down into a better delivery and then everything's in time and you go from there. So what, as that's always been my focus over the years, um, it's worked and, you know, I've had some really good days where my iron play in particular has been great and I've gone on shot good rounds, but what I have found, honestly, is that under pressure, I've kind of found it difficult to recreate. And so, you know, if, if the pressure changes things, of course it does, but it just, you know, makes some things, say Zach Johnson, for example, you know, I imagine from the top, he's just thinking about turning hard with his body. And I mean, what a great feeling to have. Whereas I can't feel that because if I feel that, I just shift more, my arms get further out of sync with my body and then I can hit it way right or way left. I mean... So I've kind of, I'm going to have to at some, well, I'm going to have to in the course of my career figure out what do I work on fundamentally that makes it easier or makes it those things happen more naturally, right? Um, so to me, that's a technical issue. And um, yeah, I, I've always kind of felt felt that over the shots I've hit, um, you know, I guess some people would argue, well, that's clearly a mental issue because I've just described how pressure changes something. Um, but I feel like you improve your technique to stand up under pressure and, you know, you want to be able to go out there and surprise yourself and have that pressure and feel that pressure, but surprise yourself with a result. And, you know, quite frankly, I haven't yet been able to do that. So I think if that answers your question in some way, that's how I would describe a bit of my history and how it's affected. Uh, definitely. That definitely answers the question, but it's interesting just to hear you talk about, about pressure because I always wanted, I mean, Every every amateur golfer in, in some way, shape, or form has experienced pressure, whether that's you know pressure to break 90 for the first time, break 80 for the first time, and you mm -hmm. feel that feeling of just your body feeling different. 
Um, it sounds like you've experienced it at least enough times to know that there's a difference. It does make a difference in, in like the way you play or the way you swing, yet it's not, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's not really anything that you can practice. I mean, you can simulate it, you know, in betting and practice rounds and stuff like that, but there's no, there's nothing that's ever going to like really train you, uh, for that moment other than experience. Am I right in saying that? Or is there, or are you trying to, you know, technically break down your swing that is specifically better under pressure. Yeah, I think you're dead. You're dead right, uh, Chris. I don't honestly think you can recreate any scenario than what you're going to face. You know, in real time. Um, and I think I could go and work on my game to make it under pressure better, right? But I think it would get worse. I, I think I'd lose my tour card before I had the opportunity to prove to people how it's better. So, you know. Like that's how I would see my own swing because of my own particular set of circumstances, particularly with transition. And transition is really what changes, I would say, under pressure. And um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's my opinion on it. How would you define the current state of your game? And when when you wake up and you're heading to the golf course, do you f- are you feeling good in your game, like much better than than last year? And do you feel like you did in 2015? Or I guess where where do you fall in the spectrum of your confidence in the state of your game? I um I think uh, I, I don't I think I'm hitting way less bad shots than I used to. Um, you know, even today I had a practice round and yeah, I hit a lot of nice shots. Um you know, I had four or five good events where I drove the ball particularly well, I felt, and that's been the big area where I've suffered and lost a lot of confidence over the last year. So I had that and then the last time I played, yeah, I wasn't quite the same. Um I feel pretty good though with my game. You know, I'm kind of focusing on the same stuff in terms of the golf swing with my coach. Now we've been focusing on it for a good four or five months. It's backswing related, trying to get me into the right positions earlier in the swing, which then helped me um, because I find that if I, you know, get the backswing correct, then, you know, I can then just focus on a transition feeling to hit the right golf shot. Whereas if I don't quite get the backswing correct, then I have to manipulate on the way down and that, you know, opens a whole nother can of worms. So, you know, the good thing is I feel like I'm focusing on one or two of the same stuff, you know, week in, week out. And that's that's kind of nice and stress-free as a golfer. And um, in terms of putting, you know, I installed the putting green in my house a couple of months ago. And I've been doing quite a bit on that. And I feel really good. Putting's definitely improving. Just the actual volume, the sheer volume that I've been putting in is making a big difference. And uh, I've done a couple of kind of, you know, game-like things where I, I tweeted actually last week a picture of a smaller hole that I put in a hole and things like that just to make my focus a bit more and um yeah i feel good though my game definitely feels you know good i can't remember how it felt in 15 when i look back at 15 i had some good weeks but i had some bad ones as well i mean i mentioned the scottish open earlier at gullen uh the week before i withdrew on the saturday of the french open i just finished my third round i was so angry i said i had a bad back but i didn't i was just kind of going crazy and um i had to book a flight home and, and i withdrew and I had to go and I knew I had to go spend three days at home just doing hundreds and thousands of drills, little single arm drills. I did that, drove up to the Scottish Open at Gullen, had no practice round and went and come like you know fourth and was only a couple off winning. So I've had so many examples as well. I could give you so many examples of where that's happened in my career as a professional. So, you know, while I think I look back and you think, oh, that looks like a good season within that season, there's just some crazy ups and downs and inconsistencies. So, um, but I do feel like I'm I'm not really there like I was back then. So I would say it feels better, but 
I'm sure everybody says that, and you know, there's some definite examples out there where you know the results will prove them wrong. Did uh, I mean you? You qualified for the U.S. Open, played with with a no laying up towel on the bag. I feel like that should be the, that should be the headline of that. But uh, you finished tied for 16th. Did that at all feel like a turning point for you? Because I know that um, we had, you know, I, I was looking, I was hoping you'd get in the Irish or Scottish Open, and it kind of was a, just a. a a stretch for you when you weren't getting in some of those events. And I, and I am sure that was a big boost for you, but T 16 at Aaron Hills going over to the States. Did that, did that week, how special was that week? It was, I think very good for me. And I think I'll reflect on it more in the long run, probably actually not until I play another major. Will I realize how, what that did for me? Because, you know, I've played a few majors, but I'd only played two in the U S and both times I was way down. Um, although actually way down because of my putting. So uh, whereas at uh, US Open just gone, I've actually putted kind of decent. Um, so that was the big surprise for me, you know, just getting on really quick, slopey greens and feeling like I can, you know, be confident with the pace because we just don't play on anything of that sort. So, yeah, I think it would be big for me, Chris, moving forward, you know, that I got a lot of confidence from it. Um, didn't hit many bad shots in the week, you know, it was kind of steady away and, yeah, tied 16th was... Yeah, it kind of feels like a bigger result than that, but that goes to show, I guess, just how, yeah, how tough it is in the U.S. Open. Yep. And you had a lot of success at the Irish Open. I think you lost in a playoff at County Down, and I think you were about T8, I think, at uh, at the K-Club. Were you a bit yeah. peeved to not get an invite to the event in 2017? Yeah, well, you know, I, I sent an invite letter to the guys at Dubai Duty Free, and I said, listen, I'm half Irish. I've got 73 cousins. <laughs> um you know, my record's really good there, so I didn't offer to give any prize money to Rory's charity because of that. And I can't believe they didn't give me an invite, um, quite honestly with you, Chris. So, um, yeah, it was a shame. I was looking forward. That seems to be my, you know, how, my, yearly, my yearly kitchen pickup. How does that, how, <laughs> how does that work? Do they, do they notify you that they're not giving you an invite or you just never hear back from them? Or how does that work? Um, yeah, they notified me uh, yeah, like, you know, not, not, not that long after I wrote the letter. I mean, kind of a couple of weeks before the event, I want to say. Um, yeah, you know, this is obviously the first year I've had to write and ask for invites. And at the start of the year, my manager drafted a few out and I kind of didn't amend them too much. But I haven't had a whole lot of success with them. So I've kind of reached the point of, you know, can I swear on the podcast? Yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, well, I've, I've reached a fuck it point, you know, where you just think, you know what? I've got nothing to lose at this point. I, I don't really care. I'm not going to be offensive, but I can say what I want. And uh, I'm trying that approach now. So we'll, we'll see if I get a few invites, then maybe you'll realize it's worked. You just start submitting like video essays or something like that, <laughs> where, where you say exactly that. <laughs> um, I want to know, you mentioned Ian Poulter earlier. Maybe he's a, he's a, he's a good comp or I, I'd, I'd written down here, Justin Rose. And I want to know like when you look at a guy like Rose or Poulter, and I, I specifically didn't go towards towards Rory and kind of the bomb, the true bomber guys that that kind of play a different game. But when you look at somebody like Justin Rose or Ian Poulter, what's the biggest thing that separates the two of you? What do you look at when you see them play and say, you know what, that's what I need or that's what I don't have? Well, the obvious answer at this point is the glasses, right? <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> I saw the solar eclipse one. I like that. Um, <laughs> And by the way, have we heard from Tron today after, you know, the whole TW Big Cat manhood leak? I have not. I'm sure he's dying to say something. Have you seen the pictures yet? I did. We were talking, well, we were viewing them on the golf course today. Yeah, we had to walk off a few shots. Um, 
That guy's <laughs> not had a good year. It's not not going well for him. But uh, that's it's much worse for Lindsey Vaughn. I think drugs are like they're working. Um, <laughs> <laughs> those you know not not that kind of drugs. You know what I mean? You know, I hope you haven't got that bit out. You know what I mean? That the sleeping pills or whatever he was taking. I don't know the painkillers. Anyway, Justin Rose and Pollard. I mean, um, <laughs> I don't know how we got there with that harmless question that I asked. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know really. I guess. In particular, with Justin, probably his ball striking prowess, I would I would argue is you know is just the difference between myself and him, and um, you know the the kind of yeah the ability he has just you know his technical prowess if that makes sense. Um, but at the same time, God, you know I don't know how old they are, but they're certainly at least I would think 15, ten years older than me at least. Um, so you know I'm aware that. Well, I'm certainly aware that time plays a massive part, you know. I mean, golf is changing, but I would hope I still have, if I do make the right decisions and focus and that sort of thing, I should have at least another 10 to 15 years out here. And then, you know, natural kind of progressions determine or mean that um, these players just have faded out of the game, right? So um, somebody's got to fill the holes and, uh, you know, that that can definitely be me in terms of that sense, in terms of Justin and, and Ian. So... Yeah, I guess in terms of if that, if that does that answer your question, I mean, I don't know Ian's game all that well, if I'm honest. I, yeah, he looks like he does a lot of good things, but you know, you see him at the odd shank now and again. So I mean, hmm. what you, uh, he's you know he's tenacious, isn't he? And I think his record is probably better than what people feel when they think of him as a golfer. But um, credit, you know, all credit to Ian. I've got a lot of respect and admiration for certainly both of them. And yeah, you mentioned Rory. I mean, yeah, he's my he's my favorite. You know, he's the best. Yeah, I just I just always enjoy asking guys like what if you could you know if you had a skill that you could trade out of yours and sub in another player's. I just find their answers pretty fascinating. I mean, Rory select Rory said he would rather have he wanted Steve Stricker to hit his wedge shots for him, and I you know I don't know because it's just interesting. A what you're willing to admit as far as your peers as to what they do better than you, and B what you see is like your weakness compared to compared to the guy's major strengths, but. Um, along the lines of what you were just talking about, it sounds like, you know, you're, you're chatting about the tiger pictures and maybe that's a bit more tabloid news than it is golf news. But do you, are you like a, are you like a golf nerd? Like, do you follow the ongoings of golf, you know, that aren't necessarily central to you very closely or, cause it surprises me sometimes, you know, guys, you know, finish T35 and they're on their plane and then they, they're not even necessarily paying attention to what happens in the tournament the rest of the day. Are you a guy that kind of follows the world of golf rather closely or is it more of a profession to you? Yeah, I, I'm really not, you know, as soon as I get off the course, I'm, um, you know, I'm on Twitter and the people I follow, you know, shit like zero hedge and people like that. So, um, which is finance, not golf. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of really not interested. Um, you know, I, I, I like following you guys obviously, cause you've got a different angle and it's pretty funny. Um, but yeah, I'm not, not a yeah. golf nerd. No, I'm really not. I'm, I'm really not, unfortunately. You, I, I never really have been, if I'm being honest. Do you love golf? I think I probably do. I certainly love a lot of many aspects of it. Um, it's an interesting one, though, isn't it? You know, it's like if my leg was chopped off tomorrow, what, what would I feel? And the truth is, obviously, I don't know what I would feel other than a lot of pain. But I think within that would be some relief, you know, because I've played this game a long time. I've had you know, the stress, the, the mo- you know, emotional kind of toil of the game is at 26, not taking its toll on me, but it's, you know, it's impacted me, right? And yeah, I feel like there would be a level of, a, you know, 
something of relief there, which is maybe interesting to think that, you know, but I'm so far down the road with it that I, you know, it's just, it just is what it is, right? And um, yeah, I, I kind of, I do love the challenge of it. There's no doubt about it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go and practice if I didn't. And the actions speak louder than the words, really. Do you, maybe, you may have just answered this by saying you don't know what you would do, but let's say, yeah, if you were to go into another career, what would be at least something you'd want to do or something that would interest you? Yeah, I mean, it would be, it would be something whereby I think the brain, like, was where if you, where knowledge was power, basically, (laughs) because the thing with golf is that really knowledge just doesn't mean jack shit, you know, kind of just doesn't you've got to be able to do it and yeah you have your golf knowledge but it's much more of an action whereas you know business or many other things in life it really is you know how can I apply my, my knowledge and my brain and use that kind of thing which I enjoy doing but you know being a golfer and you know you always just revert back to that so I don't do it often enough or certainly to the level that I would need to but it would be I don't know what industry honestly but uh, probably I really enjoy economics you know, I, I I love watching Bloomberg and keeping up to date with the markets and stuff like that, which is kind of boring. Some people would say, but I'm waiting for that. You know, kind of September '08 time to turn Bloomberg on and just watch the kind of you know, the ass fall out of the world, and then that'll be great. Kind of popcorn telly for a few hours, I think. <laughs> for the, for the record, I was asking that question along the lines of if your leg got chopped off, not as if you should be considering another career. But I didn't think you took it that way. But um. You once said on your blog, this is a quote that I always found fascinating, and I remember reading this a long time ago, but you said, I'm not sure I'll ever be happy, which doesn't bother me because all that matters is that you aren't unhappy, and I'm not mm-hmm. unhappy. I always wanted to just kind of pick your brain on to flesh that out further. It's only three sentences, but that, that kind of, that, that, that thought and that, that starting line of I'm not sure I'll ever be happy. What did you mean by that, and does that, does that quote, I guess, still apply today? Yeah, I... You know, I, don't, I can't remember when I wrote that, but that was probably at some point last year. Um, I think, like, hey, I know nothing of depression because I've never been depressed and it's, you know, it's a terrible illness. But I think some people overreact to their emotions. And um, I guess, you know, I'm of the approach that basically we are so imperfect that we're trying to be perfect. We're trying to be happy. People, you know, and, and I just feel like, well, actually, as long as you're not unhappy you know, you just are, you're just a human and we're all different. And I think that was the point I was trying to make in that. And, and I see myself as that, um, you know, I, I'm, yeah, I'm not happy about everything. I'm not a happy go lucky kind of always smiling kind of guy, but I'm in no way unhappy. You know, I have a great life. I often reflect and put things into perspective and I'm aware that my life is, you know, better than 99% of the rest of this world. And, you know, that's great, but it doesn't mean to say I'm always happy, right? And um, it's it's in our nature just to to want more, to to sometimes get down, to sometimes get frustrated, to have terrible thoughts. But you know what? That's kind of that's just what it is to be an, an animal, and uh, we are. So um, yeah, if that you know that was kind of what I was, I get, I think trying to get a across if, if, if yep. you know would you agree is that how you read it? Yeah, that's that makes sense. And I've always you know I forget who told me this one time back in the day. They said. If you have happiness, don't don't risk your happiness in search of more happiness. And that quote always kind of uh, stuck with me, kind of in that like if you if you got a good life, where what you're doing, don't necessarily pick up and move to the other side of the world just in the hope that it gets even better. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily along the same lines of what you were saying, but I've always just kind of 
people that are content in life, I always enjoy picking their brains on on how they why they're content, why they you know why they feel the certain way, if they have regrets and certain. But I, what you what you just said though about you know your life being better than ninety nine percent of the world is along the lines of what I want to talk to you as well because I mean traveling European tour goes all over the place, challenge tour especially goes all over the place. <laughs> Uh, so you, you're a guy that's been, I'm not going to say everywhere, but a lot of places, is there, is there a place that sticks out to you as being somewhere that you visited and you were like, wow, this is a totally different way that people live life. And I'm very thankful for the way I live it. Mm, yeah, there definitely are. I mean, uh, Morocco year in, year out, uh, you know, definitely there. That's one place. Um, we drove through some shocking places in Johannesburg at the start of the year. Um, Shocking in what way? In what way? Yeah, no, like shockingly deprived. And, and, you know, I was asking the drivers who are all kind of um, policemen type people down there who who drive us around that week. And I was just, you know, quizzing them, you know, where are we driving through? What's the crime like? And, you know, it was terrible, like really terrible. Um, And you could see it when you just look at the streets. Um, You know, that's, and yeah, like you described, exactly the same sort of stuff happened on the Challenge Tour. I remember I went to Russia once actually, and it was just like scary. It was a scary place, you know. The people were scary. Hmm. Um, a beautiful golf course, but it was you know, totally different to what we used to. And the same with China. You know, it's an incredible. I, I don't like going to China. Uh, we stay in lovely hotels, but you know, it's hard work, and um, it's you know a big part of it for sure. Um, and every time I go, you know, I've every time I go, and I remember looking out the bus, you know, almost every journey in Morocco, looking around and thinking, God, you know, this is, yeah, it, it hits home that you know you really have got it good, no matter how bad you've just had it on the golf course. To be fair, yeah, I think once I went to Egypt once, and I was only there for about four days, and I came back that night. Um, I went from Cairo to Amsterdam, and I I never noticed how clean the streets were in Amsterdam until I went to Cairo, until I yeah. saw it. And I just can't, I imagine, you know, somebody that travels as much as you do and been to those places that there's got to be just stuff that I remember talking with Peter Uline about uh, being in India and having a cow walk across the road that caused a traffic jam for an hour because you don't, your cows are sacred there. And just kind of the, the, you know, I imagine, you know, a lot of the courses you play aren't necessarily right next to the airport. So you do, it's not, you do get some, you know, arranged travel to and from, but you see a lot and you experience a lot in between the golf course and even the airports, I would imagine. So always enjoy asking, especially European tour guys about that. So, yeah. Um, there's been talk about, and I saw you wrote about this as well, about a world golf tour and a lot of people being in favor. Of, I, I struggle to kind of picture how it would work. Uh, do you have insight, I guess, on how that might work and whether or not you would favor it. And I'm kind of cheating because I know your answer to this, I think. But uh, I know that I, I, just a guy at your level, uh, you know, playing the European tour, I just always wanted to kind of see how how you pictured a world tour and whether or not it'd be something you would support. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how like it how it could work, um, but only because I haven't really explored that. I'm sure people could make it work. Um, I don't think it's a great idea. Uh, I get it from a, a product perspective, you know, unquestionably. If we had 45 events, you know, around the world and, you know, you were getting the best players there, most of those were not obviously not going to get in there all the time, but you're going to have stronger fields generally. It's a better product for people to watch. But I feel like there are so much, there's so much good that comes out of having the fact that a player ranked 300th in the world can still earn good money. Um, and I'll always believe that because... The wealth effect is just better, you know, trickle down 
um, wealth effect is just proving itself not to work. It hasn't worked in other sports. It's not worked socially. So why people think that it'll work in a sport like golf, you know, is beyond me. I just think it doesn't work. So um, I would always, yeah, I'd rather have the net spread wider and more people pick up more money. Uh, it's better, you know, and I use myself as an example. I gave my sponsorship money back at Frilford for two years in a row to help children, to help kids get into the game only because I could, you know, and, may, you know, maybe there's an act, there's a small act of generosity in there, but there's lots of generous people out there in life who would do something if they could. I was fortunate enough to be able to do that and I did it. And I think, you know, if we shut off that possibility, then the sport as a, as a whole would be worse off, in my opinion. Um, that, you know, I haven't done a lot of scientific research into it, but that's what I feel and that's my opinion of it, looking at other other sports as well. You, t- so, you touched you know. on that, but I, I think uh, what people can misconstrue as greed from professional athletes uh, is, it, it, I don't know, people professional athletes that make a lot of money don't necessarily just hoard the money and sit and spend it lavishly on a lot of things. I think I talked to some athletes that, you know, talk about, um, let's go maybe think about like a, a professional athlete signing a free agent contract where they go and sign with somebody that offers the most money. And, you know, some fans will look at that and say, look, you're sell out, you have all the money in the world, et cetera. But you don't. You're inherently asking them to like give up like ten million dollars, let's say, to you know to sign with maybe your favorite team. And while that can be seen as greed, that's a lot of money to a lot of people, and you can affect a lot of lives with it. Um, ten million more dollars for you might mean that you know down the line in your heritage, that means fifty more people go to college. And this is more of a U.S. issue because I know your guys' education system works a lot different, a lot better. But um, the, the amount of people you can take care of with that money, and like you just said about donating the, the sponsorship money to to youth golf, like that's something that if you weren't, if you didn't have a good income, you couldn't necessarily do. And it, it goes somewhere that you want it to go, and it has an effect on people. So um, I don't know. I don't really have a question tied to that, other than I think that people can view making a lot of money as greed when it's not necessarily always the case. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree with you um, wholeheartedly on that. You know, look, just look at how much money people like Bill Gates give to charity and Zuckerberg. You know, these are super rich guys, but they do give a lot back to charity. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's it's, a, it's you know an interesting one. I unfortunately, I think it's a bit of a, an inevitability that it will end up happening. Um, a world golf tour, and I and I see that because um, you know. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm kind of, you know, not optimistic about things economically moving forward anyway from a global standpoint. So if I was to, you know, extrapolate on that and give my opinion on that, it would be that reason as to why I think it's kind of inevitable that we end up with a kind of one world tour just because I don't think there's going to be the, the money um, in parts of the world where the European tour currently gets it for a whole lot longer. So um, but we'll just see. I hope I'm wrong on that. Uh, a couple more, and I'll let you get out of here, and then we can actually go. If you had any other topics that we missed, I'd like to hear your perspective on. But uh, what would you say you're most proud of in your career to date? Oh, that's a good one. Um, God, I need to reflect more. I need to be happier. Um, <laughs> um, oh, man. In my career, so I guess this is this could be like you know, way back. Um, it could be anything. It could be anything. What do you? Mo- it doesn't even necessarily have to be your career. What are you most proud of? Um, 
that inherently makes it a lot deeper. Then it got to they got to go with what you value, and it may not if it's outside of golf, it could be anything. Yeah, I mean, it's so tough. You know, I mean, I would say like feeding my you know six month old puppy Lily's kitchen, um, dried dried food. He really loves it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a good decision. I mean, it's, I just I've really struggled to kind of reflect in that way. Um, you know, unfortunately, Chris, I wish I had a better answer for no. you. That's, I mean, the struggling to answer that question is kind of, uh, it's an answer inherently in itself, but on the opposite side, what do you, do you have a biggest regret to date or something that you, you regret, maybe golf specific that you've done that, you know, you said, uh, if I had, if I hadn't done that, then maybe things would be different. Um, hmm. I don't think I have any regrets whereby, you know, if I hadn't have done it, something would be <clears throat> wholly different, but, um, yeah, I remember, I mentioned Marcel Seam in a blog um, a few years ago, and I wish I hadn't have done that. Um, you know, that might seem like such an odd thing to bring up, but that was always something that's kind of sat a little bit niggly with me. I mentioned the, it would refer back to what we were talking about earlier. Actually, it was at the PGA in 2015, and I kind of I felt I overheard a conversation that he was having, and and I didn't like it, and I mentioned his name, and um, yeah, I mean that's sort of thing that I wouldn't do now. Um, you know, so that I guess shows that. Hey, I've matured in that way, but I've also, you know, grown more respect for my peers out here. So that's a bit of an odd one to bring up, but no, that's, that's something that one. now and again I think about. But I won't delete it off my blog because I'm, I'm inherently against deleting anything. You know, once it's out there, like I won't amend any of my blogs because to me, like if you were to read them from A to Z, you would see that they are progress. So um, or a story in itself. So yeah, but um, I totally agree. I'm with you there. Uh, any other topics that you're itching to burn on that I that I didn't ask about or that we didn't touch on? I think you know, the only one that you brought up was Tiger's dong shot, so I'm kind of scared to ask that question. But <laughs> well, yeah, we could talk about Lindsey Vons. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't. I, well, I mean, what can we talk about? I guess. What was your take on the Rolex series like from an American's perspective? That um, I had on the list here, and I didn't. I didn't ask that, and I should have. But. Um, I read about what you wrote about it and I hadn't thought of that. So immediately my perspective on it was, you know, these big money events, um, in the, in the stretch of a series, any, any, anytime you have big money events, it's going to be a good thing. It's going to attract better talent. And I I'm, I'm rooting for the European tour as far as, you know, attracting some of their top talent and incentivizing them to come play in events. I had not thought about it from your perspective and what you had wrote about, but perhaps you can explain it better in uh, in your own words, better than I can at least, about your perspective on uh, on the Rolex series, how it affects the race to Dubai and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, what you said there about, you know, the bigger money attracts the better players. You know, that's, that's for sure, and that in and of itself is obviously great. Um, but, you know, I think in my blog I used Matt Southgate and Callum Shinkwin as two examples, and... It was the Callum Shinkwin example that kind of hit hit home most to me when I saw that, you know, what he had earned for finishing second and then where that catapulted him onto the race to Dubai. And then I just kind of went over to the PGA Tour FedEx Cup and just, you know, saw the equivalent position who actually was Sergio. So I went one less, who was Wesley Bryan. And just looking at the results they've had over the course of a season to be in those respective positions was just eye-opening, you know. One lad, Callum, who I like, you know, he's an English lad. I was great, great to see him do well because, you know, it really is good. Um, you know, he's had one good finish and the rest, I think, I don't know if he had one of the top 30 and he's 19th on the race to Dubai at the time. Whereas Wes, Wesley Bryan, you know, had had like a, you know, a breakthrough season and some great stuff in there. And I kind of thought, to me, that just doesn't seem right. And, 
you know, um, then going through other, you know, other, the other end of the spectrum where playing opportunities and a friend like Laurie Cantor, who, who's played kind of decent, but has played for far less money this year. You know, I, I like the idea of it in a way, but I think it has definitely created an extra tier to what was already a two-tier tour. I mean, you know, cause you've really now got three tiers within the European tour. You've got your top 50 guys, then you've got the rest of the guys who potentially play your Rolex series and that type of stuff, and then you've got some of the Q-School guys. So that was how I felt about it. But obviously there's positives to it, and I, and I you know, admire Keith Pelly you know, for doing what he's doing. I mean, it's, you know, it's bold. I'm not saying I would go about it the same way because honestly, I don't think we're ever going to compete with the PGA Tour financially. And when you hear that the PGA Tour has the opportunity to take every event up to $10 million tomorrow, you know, with relative ease, then you think, well, I mean, <laughs> the CEO could just, of the PGA Tour could just, uh, well, not the CEO, he's not the CEO, is he? It's um, the commissioner, is it? Um, you know, he could he could just kind of put the European Tour back to kind of square one a bit, and um, you know, I, I don't know. It's difficult, isn't it? It's unfortunate that you know we have to say that money provides the product. I guess it's the world we live in, but um, I would argue that there's other ways of you know going about it, and um, the European Tour, I think, are doing that actually in, in building up the social media kind of profile that they are, and definitely getting their players out there a bit more in terms of content. But you know. Yeah, does that make sense, what I just said? Yeah, it does. And I think, and I don't know if it's a quick fix or an easy fix or if it kind of defeats the purpose in that, and your overall point was, was that, look, these events are worth so much more money that yet the tournaments aren't that much different. The fields are stronger, but they're not like out of proportionally. Uh, I guess the dollar amount increase isn't necessarily proportional to the increase in field strength. So somebody that has a really high finish in a uh, in a in a race in a Rolex series event is going to earn a ton of money that goes towards points which is hard to catch up if you know if you're 50th on the list and not you know further back on the list and not able to play in some of the Rolex events that uh it's just a kind of a, it's almost like if you want to have these big prize pools for the Rolex events in cash that's fine but the race to Dubai standings that come with it should ne- should maybe potentially be scaled back, or you shouldn't get the full amount of of euro amount points, I guess, uh, that come with a high finish. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's the only way they can do it and look at more of a weighted point system, like you know you guys do in America. I think that's definitely the only way it can be done. I did mention that at dinner to David Lipsky, and then he went and had a look at you know I think the uh, total world ranking points that were played for or something at like the Sicilian Open, and he was kind of put me in my place a bit because I think it was less than one if that makes any sense. <laughs> I don't know if it does make sense but um, but then again I would argue that it's definitely not three times easier to win in Sicily than it is to win the Irish Open you yep. know? and because this, the depth is there right I mean I don't know what the winning score was in Sicily I did play I think it was something like 17 under par you know it was a good it was good scoring you know Alvaro Quiros won now I'm not saying that it wouldn't have been lower if they were a better field obviously it probably would have been but it wasn't three times easier to win that tournament. And the example I gave was Southgate, Matt Southgate, who finished tied second, which is where I finished, you know, in 2015 at the Irish. And I know from my own experience what I think is tougher and definitely winning three one million euro events is tougher than one tied second. So, and yet you'd earn less money. So, yeah, it's uh, it is an interesting one. At least they had the access list to, be, to their credit. You know, they foresaw what might happen and the access list is, you know, um, is definitely going to be a bit of a save for a few, a few of the guys. 
Yeah, and I, I, so what is, I guess, you touch on Keith Pelley and a lot of the things that are going on in the European tour from a social standpoint, and they seem to really, really give their team their free reign to, to do what they want, and they'll, they'll rein them in, I guess, when they need to, but really willing to try anything, anything and everything, different plays, styles of format. Uh, what of it is working in your perspective? What is not? Um, and, and overall general direction of the European tour, how do you see it? Um, I... I think, I think some certain things have definitely improved. You know, the product. I would say certainly from a social media and a content perspective. You know, they've had some good videos. They've done some great stuff that would have you know definitely gained attraction and views that people who wouldn't have been interested in golf. You know, whether it's the, the little kid in Wentworth who had shared the car or the comedian at Abu Dhabi. You know, these types of videos, great. You know, and the players have got to be able to laugh at themselves the way they did, and, and they did. So it's really good. Um, the different formats. You know. I'm, this was actually another topic we could have talked about was that, you know, why, you know, a participation figures kind of declining, you know, is it, is it the game itself or is it more of a macro picture? And I would always, well, I would say it's more of a macro picture, right. Than, than looking at the game. So, um, I would be really hesitant to, to look at criticizing the game too much and trying to change too many things about the game of golf, because quite frankly, Golf's been around for hundreds of years through wars, through all sorts of things, and we still love it. So just because we're going through a little 10-year spell where participation seems to be going down, I don't think you should look at changing the game necessarily when you consider, from a macroeconomic perspective, that the middle class is shrinking. And, you know, history would show that the middle class is what, you know, are important to the game of golf or a game like golf. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, they're willing to try new things, like you said, and that's great. Keith's bringing on a different energy, um, which again is great. And he's, he's fulfilling his, you know, his, his objectives really. So there is, you know, uh, I think his objectives were, you know, big prize funds, um, more playing opportunities and there was maybe one other. So he's kind of doing that, but, uh, you know, in a, in a, I don't know, I don't know if it's a way that we maybe hoped that it would be, but. Well, I think along the lines of what you were saying, that you're, you're donating your sponsorship money towards junior programs, and I don't know exactly what European Tour, European Tour, PGA Tour at all do. Anything that uh, what they do as far as support for junior golf, but anything to decrease the barrier to entry to playing golf is what's going to help expand the game. And it's and it's not uh, you, you put a golf club in a kid's hand at a young age and give them access to be able to figure things out and just mess around and play. I think. That is going to is would help your participation way more than him watching match play or a different format. And I, and I don't think necessarily it's the European Tour or PGA Tour's responsibility to to hashtag grow the game. And I do kind of despise that 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 saying. But it, to me, it all comes down to cost and barrier to entry. Really, I mean, it's hard for some people to justify the costs that come with playing golf, and that's understandable. So, I mean, anything that you know, I saw a really simple idea at Brookside Country Club here in Columbus. Just a, a little bin of unused, unwanted golf balls. Just donate them here for junior golf. And like mm-hmm. now, a kid doesn't have to worry about paying twelve bucks for a fresh sleeve of Pro V's. He can learn to play with, you know, my beat up Max Flies or whatever. And uh, I don't know. Just that's the kind of thing that's going to expand the game. And if I don't think necessarily the Euro Tour or any tour is trying to grow participation numbers more than they are just trying to increase interest in their in their product which is their job so i understand mm. that so i'm in support of you know trying pretty much anything i mean putting tea boxes on top of hotels like they did in turkey and um yeah. you know different formats it's fun it's it's crazy and like uh, the 
whatever the hero challenge they did before was it Germany this year and stuff like that. That's, that's cool. I liked it. I liked that, that path and uh, the, the ability to try new things is something the tour, the PGA tour isn't, is a bit hesitant to do. So I think in that regard, the Euro tour is a big leader, but um, on that note, man, I'm gonna let you go. It's about an hour. I appreciate your time. I'm really looking forward to this one and uh, really enjoyed your insights on, on the game and the, the thought that goes into what you write and what you, uh, how you, how you break the, break the game down. So um, really, really appreciated this one and look forward to, if you win in Denmark, then we're going to know the no laying up podcast bump is real. So go out and win this week and, uh, and uh, yeah, best of luck with the rest of the season. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks Chris. You got it, man. Cheers. Thanks. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes! Yeah! Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! 